Hi, welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast, a podcast about how to use technology to solve challenging technology problems for your organization. All right, Product Momentum. And uh, what better guests than who we have today? We have Nir Eyal, and he is a really well-published author at this point. We talk about his first book, Hooked, how many that sold, and really the impact it's had on the world and what he's working on next. Indistractable or unhooked, as we talk about a little bit. That's right. And how to focus ourselves and how to, how to not play the uh, distraction game. Yeah. And I mean, he's really, you know, at his core, he's a psychologist. You know, he looks at people's behaviors, what makes their brains work. And as product managers, people working on software, this is kind of the next frontier. Like you have to do more than just build a functional website or a functional product or something that looks nice. It's got to actually, you know, grab people's attention in different ways. Right. And another thing that that's going to come up is the purpose, right? Why are we building these software products and what good are they doing in the world versus just building things to manipulate people or um, get things done that we want that's not necessarily good for them? Right. So we talk, you know, we ask them about, you know, what is the right kind of product to apply, you know, the hooks and the habit forming behaviors that he talks about, you know, is there a line? Is there, you know, how do you know if you're being manipulative or not or unethical or, you know, all these questions that, you know, I know people kind of wrestle with as they're building products and they want to be, you know, they want to be moral and ethical, but they also know that they need to have users who use their products. And we all want to build products that inspire the world. Right, Joe? <laughs> That's right. All right. Here we go. All right, Sean. Well, today we've got someone we're super pumped to talk to. We've got Nir Eyal. Yeah, one of the founding fathers of the whole field of behavioral design. At least one of the guys that have, have certainly popularized it in recent years, and we're excited to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind, for everyone, just uh, if you could introduce yourself, talk about what kind of work you do, where you work, what your books are that we all should know and have read. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's see. So uh, my background is I, I helped start uh, two tech companies, the last of which was in the gaming and advertising space. And uh, at that vantage point at my last company, I saw a whole lot of companies kind of come and go. This was back in 2007, back when apps didn't mean mobile apps because the Apple App Store didn't exist. Apps back then meant Facebook apps. And so this was back when, if you remember the days when, when people were throwing sheep and doing you know, silly games like that. And so we had this really interesting vantage point where I saw these apps kind of come and go and some of them would engage millions of people overnight and others would kind of you know, burn out. And so from that vantage point, I, I became very curious as to why that was happening. And what I wanted to do was to really understand the deeper psychology of how companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, what is the deeper psychology behind how these companies build their products to be so habit forming. So I started blogging about what I was learning and then that turned into a course that I taught at uh, the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. Later I taught for several years at the design school there. And then that turned into my book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, which uh, five years ago now it came on the market. We've just passed 250,000 copies, so it's, it's done really well. And uh, since that time, since publishing Hooked, I've been working on my next book, which is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, which is coming out in September 2019. Very cool. So you're hooking people and then you're unhooking them. I get it. It makes sense. It's smart. Not really, but, <laughs> but it makes for a good story. <laughs> 
We didn't call the book Unhooked for a reason. Actually, my publisher wanted me to call it Unhooked, and I didn't want to call it Unhooked because I didn't want to negate anything in Hooked. That I truly believe that the power of writing about these tactics that so many companies use to build habit-forming products, that power still remains. And what I wanted to do with Hooked was to democratize that power. Right? What if we could use this deeper psychology that Facebook and the gaming companies use to get people hooked? Why can't we use that for good? And that's exactly what Hooked is all about. But of course. You know, the question came up over the past several years of how do we make sure that we don't overuse these things? Why do we keep getting distracted? And I actually saw that in my own life, I was getting distracted by various technologies. So the book really became a study not just about technological distraction, uh, but about the psychology of distraction. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely becoming you know, more noticeable in society. I mean, companies like Apple are releasing features for digital well-being, limiting time on devices, showing you how much time you're spending on apps. So it's definitely a real thing. I'm curious, how did this all kind of start for you? Like, was there some kind of a moment or something, you know, in your past where you were just like, I need to understand why people's brains work this way and what creates habits and how this all works? Yeah, let's see. So uh, I probably would have to, <laughs> my, my first fascination with this field probably came out of my childhood. So I was clinically obese up until about halfway through high school. Um, you know, my parents took me to fat camp and I remember going to the doctor's office and they had a big chart there on the wall and it said, you know, here's your BMI, here's your age, et cetera. And I was definitely in that red obese category, uh, on the edge of the chart. And I remember food having control over me. And in that time, I became really fascinated by how it was that this external thing seemed to control me. And you know, getting my, my weight under control and something I still struggle with today revealed a lot to me around, uh, around the psychology of why we do things that we don't intend to do, things that harm us. And this turns out to be an age-old problem. You know, Socrates and Aristotle talked about the nature of akrasia, this tendency to do things against our better interest. And so I became really fascinated by how it is that products and services can persuade us to do things that you know, can either harm us or can be very helpful. And so the idea was, you know, how can we use these techniques for good? How can we use products and services to build healthy habits in people's lives? Because the problem that I saw when I got to Silicon Valley back in 2006 was that there was lots of technology out there that nobody knew how to apply uh, to change behavior in a positive way. The problem was, hey, I'm building a product and nobody cares, right? <laughs> the problem back then was not what it is today of people overusing. The problem back then and still is for the vast majority of companies out there is, you know, nobody cares about your product. The problem is not overuse, it's underuse. It's, it's that people's lives would be so much better if they just use the product. And so the goal of my work is to really help people design the kind of products and services that people want to use as opposed to feeling like they just have to use because their boss demands it or because they receive some spammy advertising once again telling them to please, please use our product. You know, what if we could design our products and services in a way that could help people form these healthy habits in their lives? Yeah, I think it's it's totally relevant. It makes a lot of sense with all the saturation occurring, but our audience is a lot of product managers and UX designers and people building software. And they're regularly thinking about, you know, how do we get people to notice our product? How do we get people to use our product in a way that's positive and not negative or manipulative? So just maybe at a really basic level, what do you consider to be a healthy habit versus an unhealthy habit? It's really about intent. Uh, it's really about, are you doing what it is you said you wanted to do? And so that's really the core thesis of this next book, Indistractable. Being indistractable does not mean you never get distracted. It means you are the kind of person who is as honest with themselves as they are with other people, right? So we're all taught in school 
don't lie, right? One of the things that you never want someone to call you, you know, one of the worst put downs if someone calls you a liar, you know, you would never book a, a lunch with your mom and not show up, right? You would never do that to people. And yet we lie to ourselves all the time even when we know when we want to do the right thing, right? We know that uh, chocolate cake is not as healthy as a healthful salad. We know we should work out. We know when we sit down at our desk, we should do that big project as opposed to getting distracted with emails or Slack channels. And yet we don't do what we know we should do. And that's the big question I wanted to answer in Indistractable is why don't we do the things that we know we should do? And is there a fix? And thankfully, after five years of research, uh, it turned out that uh, there is a solution and uh, that the problem turns out is not technology. That technology is what's called the proximal cause, not the root cause at the heart of why we get distracted. Oh, that's interesting. So what is at the root cause? I think you baited me into that one. <laughs> well, you have to buy the book. No, I'm, I'm just, I'll, give you a, <laughs> I'll give you a sneak peek. So here, here's what happened to me. So um, after I wrote Hooked, I was sitting with my daughter and we had this time together uh, this daddy-daughter time that we have several times a week. And on this particular day, we were reading this book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And one of the activities was to ask each other, what superpower would you most want? You know, would you want to fly like Superman? Would you want to be incredibly strong like the Incredible Hulk? Whatever. And I wish I could tell you what my daughter said in that moment, but I can't because I was busy. I was distracted on my phone and I didn't hear what she said. And the next thing I knew, I looked up from my phone and I looked around the room and she'd left. And so that was kind of the moment in my mind that I said, geez, you know, I know the deeper psychology behind why these products are designed the way they are. And look, here I am unhealthfully hooked to some silly thing on my phone. And so I decided to really take the bull by the horns and figure out this problem for myself. So I do what I always do when I have uh, an interesting book idea. I bought every other book on the topic. And nine times out of 10, when this happens, I read you know, the seminal book on this topic and I say, oh, okay, somebody else has answered this question. No need for me to write the book. That didn't happen in this case. I literally bought every book on the topic of distraction and focus, and all of them said basically the same thing. Tune out, right? Stop using the distraction so you can be focused. And I tried all that. I got a 1990s word processor from eBay. Uh, I got myself this feature phone with uh, no apps on it that I bought from Alibaba, this $12 feature phone that did nothing but send texts and receive calls. And so I got rid of all the technology because that was the problem, right? Technological distraction is caused by technology, right? No, <laughs> because when I'd sit down to write, when I'd sit down to do something that required focus and concentration, I, I said, oh, you know what? There's that, um, there's that book on the bookshelf behind me that I've been meaning to check out. You know, let me just read that for just a minute or two, right? That's kind of related to my job. Or, um, you know, I, sh I, I should probably take out the trash real quick because my workspace is, is kind of dirty. I should take care of that. Or, you know, I should probably fold some laundry. Uh, laundry needs folding. And so what I found was that I constantly got distracted from something because I was looking for distraction. So the first step, and this is something that took me a long time to discover, and, and once I tell it to you, you're going to say, yeah, of course, that's the answer. But it's this icky, sticky truth that we don't want to admit to ourselves, which is that distraction starts from within. That we have to ask ourselves, what painful sensation are we trying to escape? We used to abide by Freud's pleasure principle, that all humans seek pleasure and avoid pain. That's the masters of human motivation, avoiding pain and, and pursuing pleasure. Turns out that neurologically speaking, it's all pain. All human behavior is motivated by the desire to escape discomfort. It's called the homeostatic response. And so if all behavior is motivated by the desire to escape discomfort, even positive behaviors, right? Even wanting something good, the desire is painful, is uncomfortable, right? This is why love hurts, right? So 
if all behavior is motivated by the desire to escape discomfort, then distraction being a behavior is also motivated by the desire to escape discomfort. So the first step is to understand what is that discomfort that we're trying to escape? Is it boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty? What's that itch that we seek to escape? Which by the way, the reason I had this insight is because the most important step in the hook model, which I describe in the book hook, says that if you are going to attach your product's use to a consumer habit, you also have to find what's called the internal trigger. You have to find that itch that occurs throughout their day that they solve that problem, they scratch that itch with, with your product. That's your goal is to create that habit between the internal trigger and the use of your product. And so that's the first place that we start as well with breaking a bad habit, with breaking a habit that's not serving us, is finding a healthier way to deal with that discomfort. So a good chunk of the book talks about, in Indistractable, talks about how to master internal triggers. Uh, then we move on to these other techniques that I, I provide. But that's really the starting place. But we can go further depth. I don't want to talk and talk here. So I'll let you chime in. Oh, that's what you're here for. This is good stuff. Um, earlier, Joe asked about healthy habits versus unhealthy habits, and your response was about intent. And mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the teams that are building these products that hook people or unhook in some cases. We hear a lot about this manipulation versus inspiration thing. And you've got a really cool model out there um, called the manipulation matrix. Right. Which deals with the teams, and it really deals with the intent. What is the intent of the team? Um, you want to talk about that a little bit? I'd love for the audience to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. So when Hooked was published more than five years ago now, I, you know, ethics and how to use this stuff ethically was, of course, top of mind for me. So there's a chapter in the book that's devoted to how to apply these techniques for good, how to apply these techniques ethically. And so I give this test, this two-part test that I call the manipulation matrix. Uh, as a former consultant, I love good two-by-twos. So if you can think of a two-by-two -two where you have two questions that you need to answer. And so the, the answer to those questions puts you into four different buckets. So on one axis is yes, no, on the other axis is also yes, no. And the two questions are this. The first question, if you ask yourself, okay, I'm gonna apply these techniques, I'm going to design a product uh, to manipulate consumer behavior, not in the pejorative sense of manipulation, but you know, all design, good design, bad design, all design seeks to manipulate consumer behavior. That's what good design is all about, is helping people do things that they want to do, uh, but for lack of good design, don't do. And there's a big difference between these two types of manipulation. There is coercion and there is persuasion. Persuasion is perfectly ethical. Persuasion is helping people do things they want to do. Coercion is unethical. Coercion is getting people to do things they don't want to do. So if you're asking yourself, okay, how do I uh, use these techniques for good? How do I be on the right side of this ethical test? There are two questions you need to answer. The first question is, is what I'm working on, is the thing that I'm going to apply these behavioral techniques to materially improving people's lives? So this is a question that you have to ask yourself. It's not something that you use to judge other people or that other people use to judge you. You have to ask yourself, look in the mirror, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? But that's not good enough, okay? The second question you have to answer is, am I the user, okay? Am I the user? Now, why do I want people to ask themselves that question? Do you guys know the first rule of drug dealing? What's the first rule of drug dealing? Stuff your face in a pile of cocaine like Scarface. <laughs> no, but uh, close. The, the, the first rule of drug dealing, I'll give you another shot, is never get high on your own supply. So why is that the first rule of drug dealing? Right, very close, almost. <laughs> <laughs> and don't be like Scarface. So the first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. And I want you to break that rule. 
I want anyone who is thinking about using these techniques to get high on their own supply, to use their product. Why? Because if there are deleterious effects to this product, you are going to be the first one to know about it. So if and only if you can pass those two questions of, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives, and am I the user, are you what I call a facilitator? Now, that doesn't mean that you can't make money, so to speak, on you know, saying no to those two things, right? This is not about, can I be successful? This is about, can I apply these techniques with a clear conscience? And so I think if you are building something that materially improves people's lives and you yourself are the user, that to me puts you in this special category of someone who is a facilitator, who is using these things ethically. It's also really, really good for business. If you think about it, the hardest part about designing a product that people want to use, that people love, the hardest part is understanding your user's needs. That's the hardest part of product design is getting inside users' brains to understand their inarticulatable needs, what they want, but they can't tell you they want. And so you have a huge leg up, a huge competitive advantage if you yourself are the user. I love that. So what we struggle with every day is how do we figure out what these people need, but they won't tell us. We do all these observations and interviews and look at data and analytics and try to figure it out. It's awesome. Right. And so if you are the user, that's a huge competitive advantage. Now, we don't always have that luxury. Uh, sometimes life, you know, we're building something for somebody else. But, you know, if we want to do it ethically, I think that's the best position to be in, which, which is a call also for diversity, right? If you're building a product and nobody on your product team looks like your user, that's a problem, right? right. That's a big problem. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. What this pulls on to me is the concept of empathy and how mm-hmm. I think empathy is it's the most important skill set going into the next century, really. And we have to figure out how to learn, how to become more empathic. And there's different parts of empathy, right? So the one part of empathy is the one that you talked about earlier. It's this manipulation thing. The buzzword that we hear a lot these days is emotional intelligence. How Mm -hmm. capable are you as a leader of influencing other people in the world to, to change their behavior, so to speak, or to persuade them? And they say that that's a larger predictor of success than IQ. But how you measure success is about way more than just that. Because you can influence a lot of people to do really bad things. Hitler did it well, right? And like you said, drug dealers do it well. Call them what you will. Um, They influence people to these behaviors that are not necessarily good for the world or good for your first question. Will this this product improve people's lives in the broader sense, Right. right? Right, right. The other side of empathy is what scientists call affective empathy, right? Which is our capacity for actually caring. I believe that the difference between inspiration and manipulation or persuasion and coercion is really how much you care about the people that you're leading, you know, through rote leadership or through a software product that you're building, right? So I think this capacity for caring and this increasing of the capacity of our teams for caring for their users, this building of empathy for the actual users is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I would add to it that a good test, so, so the manipulation matrix that is in Hooked is really a test for the individual. It's for singular uh, product designers to ask themselves this question of, am I applying these techniques ethically? Now, the question I got after I wrote the book was, well, what about uh, for teams, right? How do we, as an enterprise, decide if a technique that we want to use is ethical or not? Uh, because what we see is that for many of these design patterns, for even you know what we call dark patterns in the industry, What we find is that in some cases, the same exact technique that some people call manipulative and coercive turns out to be persuasive and helpful in other circumstances, right? So I'll give you a good example. Uh, Streaks. So on Snapchat, there's this design pattern called a streak, 
where it basically says, you know, you don't want to break the chain so that if you uh, message a friend, you get like this little number icon for every day that you consistently message back and forth with your friends. That's called a streak. And it can be a very effective technique to keep people doing a, a behavior day after day after day. Now, some my, people say this is, what's that? My kids know it well. <laughs> okay, there you go. My son just went on a week-long camp where he couldn't have his phone. So he actually gave his phone to his sister to make sure she keep his streaks. It's amazing. Perfect example. Perfect example. So some people decry this as coercive, but of course the same exact technique is used by Duolingo is used by many meditation apps to keep people doing a behavior they wanted to do day after day after day. So they won't break that chain. So they'll keep up their streak. So it's not the persuasive technique itself. It's not the psychology that's being used. It's how it's applied. And so this becomes very confusing for us as product designers, knowing, hey, how could it be that the same technique in two different circumstances, one is ethical, one is unethical, how does that work? And so a few years ago, I really wanted to come up with an ethical test that we in the product design community could use. And I, I wanted to replace what Google used to use, which was don't be evil, which is silly, right? Like evil is completely subjective. It's you know something that if you squint hard enough, you can make something that's evil look not evil. So it, it just didn't work for me. And of course, now it doesn't work at Google either. They don't have that as their official motto anymore. So what replaces this test? As a team, what can we point to? How can we raise our hand and say, hey, boss, I'm not sure if this is such a good idea. So I came up with what's called the regret test. And I, I published about this on my blog near and far. The, the idea behind the regret test is that's the ultimate way that we tell the difference between persuasion and coercion. Coercion is when someone regrets doing the thing we've designed for them to do, right? So we can actually test for this in a way that we as product designers have been testing all sorts of features for decades now. What do we do? When we have a new feature, we bring people into a room. We do some user testing and we see what the usability looks like, right? We, we gain feedback from people interacting with it. Well, we can do the same thing when it comes to these design patterns. We can bring people into a room and by using this regret test, which means we ask people, knowing everything that we as a designer know, would you do what you just did, right? Just such a simple question of, hey, here's what's going to happen next. Do you regret having done that thing? I, I'm being a little amorphous here because it's hard to speak in terms that applies to every situation, but I think you get the basic idea, right? Here's the behavioral design pattern. Would you regret this behavior? And the, and the idea here, if we just bring in 10 people and run these kind of tests, we get the kind of insights that help us prevent making terrible mistakes later on. Because if we don't understand if people are going to regret using our product now, we are going to kick ourselves later right? That's going to be horrible when people stop using our product. You know, people aren't sheep. When a product is not helpful, when they regret using a product, they stop using that product. So unless you're a child, when children are a protected class in our society, there's certain things that children should not and cannot do by law. And then there's another class of people who are addicted and addiction is a pathology. We're not talking about people who just like to, you know, play apps a lot. We're talking about people who are pathologically addicted. For everyone else, when a product isn't good, you stop using it. You regret using it, you stop. So again, not only is it an ethical imperative, it's a business imperative to make sure that you are not building the kind of products that your customer or user would regret using. That makes a lot of sense. I got to think about that more and how to use that within our teams. Something we hear a lot, because we're talking about like consumer apps now, like Snapchat and everything. And when we talk about gamification or habits or triggers with clients is, you know, our product isn't used a lot. We have tax software. We have something that, right. you know, they don't log into every day or even every week. So are these principles or these ideas or anything like that something they can still use and apply? Or is it more for 
you know, these kind of like social networks and just things you might use day to day? Yeah, so the, the line of demarcation is not enterprise versus consumer. There are lots of consumer examples and there are a lot of enterprise examples of companies that use the hook model. So uh, you can see the hook model in all sorts of enterprise products from uh, Salesforce, GitHub, Stack Overflow, uh, lots of enterprise products. Uh, Slack is a great example. You see the hook model in all of these products and services. By the way, not that they use the hook model, but you can see the hook model uh, post-dates many of these companies when they were designed. But you can see examples of the hook model built into these products and services all the time. And so the line of demarcation is not enterprise versus consumer. The line of demarcation is frequent versus infrequent. If your product is not used with sufficient frequency, this is the number one reason why I will tell a company, hey, sorry, you're not going to create a user habit, is if the behavior does not occur with sufficient frequency. And, and the test, you know, at Google, uh, Larry Page says that it's a toothbrush test. He wants to build the kind of products that people use twice a day, like a toothbrush. The studies show it's actually not quite that uh, frequent, it's about a week's time or less. That uh, products that are used within a week's time or less are the ones that are most likely to change a consumer habit. But if your product is not used within a week's time or less, very, very hard to change that consumer habit. So what do you do? So first thing, not every product needs to be habit forming. Let's be very clear here, right? My agenda is not that every product needs to be habit forming. It's that every product that needs a habit needs a hook. Lots of businesses can deliver value to their customers, to their stakeholders without becoming a habit. The problem is, if you don't have a habit, you need to find some other competitive advantage. Because if you don't have some kind of other competitive advantage, then you are constantly fighting on price and features, price and features, price and features. So let's take uh, insurance, right? Insurance is not a product that you use habitually, right? You know, you buy it, and then God forbid something happens, then you call and say, oh my gosh, you know, I had a vendor bender and I, I need to call my insurance company. But that's never going to become something that you use habitually. But the problem is, if you don't form a consumer habit or have some other kind of sustained competitive advantage, you're constantly fighting on price and features so that, you know, today, Geico says, hey, 15 minutes will save you 15% on car insurance. Tomorrow, somebody else says, hey, guess what? 12 minutes saves you 20% on car insurance. So to get out of that cycle of constantly competing over price and features, habits can be a huge competitive advantage. So what you can do if you have a product that is not used with sufficient frequency, you can actually bolt on a habit forming experience. For example, consuming content would be something that you could bolt on. Uh, William Sonoma did a great job of this. William Sonoma, you know, they make cookware. Buying cookware is never going to become a habit, just not something that people do with sufficient frequency. But consuming content around cooking and recipes and famous chefs, that actually is a habit. That's something that people do habitually. So what do they do? They made this website called taste.com which is constantly creating new content so that, and here's the keeper, you know, tweetable phrase here, the result of engagement is monetization. Particularly when it comes to e-commerce companies, we are so focused on getting people to check out and we spend no time trying to figure out how to get them to check in. And that's a mistake. We have to figure out how to get people to engage with us more frequently by bolting on these habits. So one direction is content. Another is community, right? If you can build some kind of community around your product, even if it's not used all that frequently, the community aspect of that product can keep people engaged so that, again, the result of engagement is monetization at some point. I love that. I mean, just for people to hear that not everything has to be habit forming. You know, I remember back when Foursquare came out, like they had badges and they did it well. Everyone wanted to add badges to everything. And it was like, oh God, this badge overload. So I think that's really helpful. And you know, what you're saying about basically keeping people's attention, whether that's through content or community, is also very important. I think that's one of the really underutilized things that companies who have infrequently used products do nowadays. 
Yeah, and more of them should do it. And just to be clear, what I'm talking about here is not gamification, right? Gamification, I'm not a big fan of gamification, you know, using game-like mechanics and non-gaming environments, badges, points, leaderboards. It was hot for a few years and then it kind of fizzled out because it was misapplied, right? What happened was people put badges on everything, but they forgot that the reward has to scratch the user's itch, right? We talked about those internal triggers earlier. If the internal trigger is boredom, well, then badges and points and leaderboards can make the experience more entertaining. But what if the internal trigger is something else? What if it's workplace anxiety? Well, I don't want your freaking badges. <laughs> right? That, right. <laughs> that doesn't solve my problem. Get that out of here. And so that's why we have to start with these internal triggers. That's the most important question you have to ask yourself as someone who's building a habit-forming product is truly what is that user itch and does it occur with sufficient frequency for me to build a habit around? It's kind of like, you know, when people, they see one of these new tools or techniques or anything, it's, it's almost like a hammer and they see everything as a nail. That's so right. That's the, that's the concern. Gamification does work in certain circumstances, particularly when the internal trigger is boredom, but there's a lot of circumstances where that is the wrong answer. Or where competitiveness is important. You know, we've seen it work well in academia, for example, and in the social science publishing space. There's certain places where it has a role mm -hmm. and others where it yep. simply doesn't. So to pull on that and go a little bit more tactical in Hooked, you talk about rewards of the tribe, the hunt, and the self. And I'm fascinated by that model. So I'd love for you to talk about it a little more. And how do you know when to use each and how do you know or how might you experiment with those different types of rewards? Yeah, absolutely. So let me give you kind of a picture of the four steps of the Hook model. So the Hook model has these four steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. So we talked about those internal triggers. There's also external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, all the things that prompt you to action in your environment. Those are the external triggers. The internal triggers, which we talked about earlier, are these things inside of us, right? It's these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, stress, any of these things that we seek to escape by using a product, which leads us to the next step of the Hook, the action phase. The action phase is the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward, the simplest thing we can do in anticipation of a reward. It's opening an app, scrolling a feed, checking a dashboard, these simple things that we do habitually. Uh, then comes the reward phase. And the reward phase is where the itch is scratched. This is where that internal trigger is satiated a little bit. And there are three types of these variable rewards, rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. Rewards of the tribe are things that feel good, that have an element of variability, a bit of mystery to them, and come from other people. So, you know, social media is all about these rewards of the tribe. Then you have rewards of the hunt, which is all about the search for material possessions or information rewards, right? What makes, you know, scrolling a news site uh, habit forming is that uncertainty around what information you might find. Our jobs use variable rewards in terms of a, a year-end bonus, right? There's uncertainty. What might you get if you stick around? It's a retention device. So anytime people are hunting for information rewards, money, material possessions, that's rewards of the hunt. And then finally, rewards of the self are things that feel good, have an element of variability, but don't come from other people and aren't about these information or material rewards. These are things that are intrinsically pleasurable. They feel good in and of themselves. Uh, best example there is gameplay, right? When you play Angry Birds or Clash of Clans or any number of other games that you might play, getting to the next level, the next accomplishment, the next achievement is all about the search for mastery, competence, and control. And so that's rewards of the self. Probably the mother of habit-forming technology is email, right? If you think about email, email incorporates tribe, hunt, and self. You've got rewards of the tribe. It comes from other people. You've got rewards of the hunt. There's uncertainty around the information 
that you might find, right? What's going to be in the emails? Is it good news? Is it bad news? Is it something urgent that I need to reply to? And then finally, rewards of the self. There's this mechanism of, you know, every time you get a notification, every time you see an unread message, there's this sense of competency and control over checking that message, getting it done with, getting it processed. Those are all rewards of the self. So every habit-forming experience uses one or more of these three types of variable rewards. Uh, so it's not that you have to have all three, but you have to have at least one of them. Awesome. So what product at the moment do you think does a good job of that? Oh, there's so many. You know, since the book came out, I've been very fortunate that people will write to me and show me, hey, we used your your hook model. Here's how we're using it. And, and I love it because, you know, the, the companies that I see are really improving people's lives. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. So one company that just went public is called Kahoot. Uh, if you have kids, <laughs> your kids will most likely know this company, Kahoot. Uh, they are the world's most widely used educational software. And it uses the hook model to make classroom learning more engaging, more fun for kids to build this habit in the classroom. So, oh, I, I, full disclosure, I liked it so much, I invested in Kahoot. You know, I, I have these office hours and anybody can call me and you know, ask me questions about the book. So um, the founder, Johan, called me up several years ago and said, hey, here's how we're using your hook model. What'd you think? And I, I loved it so much that I invested. A company I didn't invest in, but I wish I would have. Uh, there's another company called Fitbod, which is changing people's exercise habits. Brilliant use of the hooked model that's helping people make a habit of uh, exercising regularly in the gym. Uh, there's a company called Paga uh, that I've worked with in the past. They are bringing millions of previously unbanked people in Africa online for the first time, giving them bank accounts because they're in these rural areas where getting to a physical bank location is too difficult. So they're, they're doing it through their phones. Again, this healthy habit of, around money and saving. So there's lots and lots of examples of companies that are, are using the hook model for healthy habits. Awesome. It's amazing. I want to kind of go through a quote I was seeing the other day, and this will be maybe a bit of a stream of thought. Hopefully, you can see where I'm going. But I saw this quote from J.R.R. Tolkien and said, not all who wander are lost. And I was thinking about that with this interview coming up and your book that you're coming out with. And I always think about how there can be value in letting your mind wander, whether it's riding a bike, taking a shower. So is, is that kind of like a good distraction or is that not distraction at all because maybe you're focused on something valuable and not looking at your phone, for example? Um, I was just trying to think through that a little bit more. No, it's a terrific question. So in my book, you know, I define distraction in a special way. So distraction is anything that moves you off track from what you want to do. The opposite of distraction is traction. So traction moves you towards what you want to do. Distraction is anything that moves you away from what you want to do. So there's traction and the opposite is distraction. They actually both have the same Latin root, which means to pull, trahare, which means to pull. At the end of both words is action. Distraction and traction both end in the word action. So they are both actions. They are both things we do, not things that happen to us. Now, what I think what you're describing, you know, what you call like a healthy distraction, I would call a diversion. A diversion is just rerouting our attention to focus on whatever it is we want to focus on. And that's wonderful. There's nothing unhealthy about getting diverted, you know, uh, engaging in a diversion, I should say, as a noun, or engaging in a diversion. That's totally fine. If and only if it's what you intended to do. So for example, if I showed you my calendar, you would see that every evening I have for an hour and a half from eight o'clock to 930, I have social media time. Now, I took something that used to be a distraction that I used to engage with when I was with my daughter, when I was supposed to be doing work. When I meant to do one thing, I was using social media as a distraction. It took me off track, right? It limited my traction. 
Now, by scheduling the time that I make for social media, it's no longer a distraction, it's traction. That is exactly what I wanted to do with my time. I wanted to engage in a diversion. So whether it's you know watching sports on TV, whether it's taking a long walk, whether it's doing nothing, whether it's meditating, whatever it is that you want to do is totally fine. I'm not one of these people who somehow believes that playing video games is morally superior than watching a basketball game on TV, right? They're both diversions and there's nothing wrong with that. Getting out of your head and relaxing and you know uh, letting your mind wander is wonderful. What I advocate for is doing so with intent. None of these technologies are evil. I know people in the press tell you it's evil and it's rotting your brain, it's hijacking, it's a bunch of crap. If we use them with intent, they're perfectly fine. They can be perfectly healthy. But the key word here is to plan ahead. It's with intent. That's a great distinction. I like that. Yeah. I saw this tool the other day called Boundless.ai. Not that the tool itself matters, but it's basically trying to build artificial intelligence to, instead of manually thinking of ways to build habits for people, you know, automate it essentially. And someone on Twitter called that behavioral engineering with a super negative mm-hmm. you know, tone. If you can read into the tone on Twitter. But um, so I was thinking about that, I was like, well, it's depends how you look at it. You know, it's all about how you frame it. It's about how you apply it, I think. Right. And, and I, I don't know about this specific company. I, it's a little bit difficult for me to understand how you could algorithmically do that. Uh, you know, the, the idea behind the hooked model is to help people come up with better hypotheses, right? Today, we, you know, we, a bunch of us product designers, we sit in a room and we kind of, you know, in most cases we wait for orders. What should we build? Oh, what does the boss say we should build? What does the loudest customer say we should build? What do our investors say we should build, right? This is the big problem in product design is what do we build, right? What features come next? We've got a huge backlog. How do we prioritize? So the idea behind the hooked model is to give a little bit of rhyme and reason to this, to understand through some very old, very established consumer psychology research, you know, if our product needs repeat engagement, how do we make sure that we have the key pillars, the trigger, the action, the reward investment to make sure that our product is designed in such a way that it is built for repeat engagement, that it is designed for habits, as opposed to just guessing and hoping that we build the right thing. I love that. So the core message here around indistractability is to be purposeful with your decisions around how you're spending your time. Right. Is to do what you say you're going to do. And frankly, I don't care what it is that you decide to do, right? I'm not one of these moralists that says, you know, this diversion is good. That one is bad. How you spend your time should be done to align with your values. That's what's important. The problem is we all talk a good game, right? We say our health is important to us, but then we don't exercise and eat right. We say family is important to us, but we only make time for our family when it's left over in our day. So it's really about how do we live our values by doing what it is we say we're going to do. All right, one question, a little bit off the reservation here. Where do you think innovation comes from? You started to touch on that a little bit and how the hook model can help to create more of those micro, sort of more tactical innovations. But where do you think big innovations come from? Any advice for the audience on where we might get more ideas? Yeah, so this actually isn't as far off the reservation as you might think. One of the chapters in my book, so about half the book, Indistractable, is about things that we can do as individuals. But then, of course, you know, while I was writing this section, I had this nagging doubt about what I was writing because the fact is, you know, I can tell you how to be indistractable, but if your boss calls you at 10 p.m. with an urgent request, you got to pick up the call and do what they say or you, you might lose your livelihood. So what I realized in this study of distraction is how influenced we can be by the culture of our companies. And what I learned was is that 
the correlation between which companies are the most distractible, where people feel like they're running around like crazy, where they have this always on, always responsive culture, which you know burns people out, has been shown to be correlated with depression and anxiety disorders, are companies with really crappy culture. That it turns out that distraction at work is a symptom of dysfunction. And the companies that have the kind of culture where people have what's called psychological safety, meaning that they can have healthy disagreements, they can bring up issues without fear of getting fired, those are the companies, incidentally, that don't struggle with distraction because somebody says, hey, guys, I, you know, I find I can't work because people keep interrupting me. Can we talk about this problem? Versus the companies where if you said something like that, you'd fear that someone would think you're just being lazy and you might get fired. The companies who can talk about their problems, just like a healthy family, if you can talk about those problems, those are the companies that not only don't struggle with distraction, those are also the companies that have the best ideas right? Because you know, I, I profile two companies in the book. I profile BCG and I profile Slack. And it turns out that when these companies built a mechanism to build psychological safety, to create the kind of culture where people can talk about their problems without fear of retribution, not only did they solve their distraction challenges, they also had all these great ideas bubble up, right? They learned from the frontline employees about these wonderful ideas that turned out to be substantial innovations because they had this environment of open dialogue and a healthy disagreement. So that's where I think good ideas come from. They come from an environment where people have the psychological safety to bring out their ideas, to discuss their ideas without fear of someone saying, ah, that's a dumb idea, or who are you to say, or whatever. Awesome. So we're talking about building indistractable companies. That's right. That's right. That's actually the name of one of my chapters. <laughs> there you go. And indestructible teams, for sure. Right. All right. Well, uh, one last question for you, and then we'll wrap up. Other than Indistractable, your latest book, what's the f- book you've been recommending to others to read recently? Oh, there's so many good books. I'm looking at the book case behind me. There are so many good ones. I mean, I, I'm just going to answer the question of what book did I read recently that kind of blew my mind. And I'll give you two. And neither of them are product related. <laughs> they're, they're, they're just great books that I really enjoyed. So one is called Suggestible You. Uh, the, the author's name is Vance, uh, V-A-N-C-E. And it's all about the placebo effect. And I had no idea how powerful the placebo effect was. So that was a great book. The other book I read that I really liked is Lost Connections, which was written by Hari, Johan Hari. Uh, and this is a book that explores the true nature of addiction. Uh, we talked about you know, the difference between habits and addictions. You know, addictions are always bad. They're always harmful. So you may want to check those out if you're interested in the real cause of addiction and why addiction is not as simple as many people think. Many people think that uh, addictive technology is caused by technology, right? A technology addiction is caused by technology. Well, it turns out that there's much, much more going on than most people realize. Love it. Haven't heard those before. Can add them to my list. Cool. Well, Nir, thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed this. I think it's going to be super valuable for everyone who listens. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention or plug before we end? Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. So my uh, website is nearandfar.com. It's uh, near spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far, nearandfar.com, where you can find a lot more depth about what we just talked about. Uh, and if you're interested in the books, uh, my first book is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my next book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And that is coming out in September. Can't wait to read it. Thank you. All right. Nir, again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And can't wait for everyone to get to listen to this. Thank you, guys. All right. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And we're not going to just talk to talk. We're going to walk the walk. So we would love if you go into your podcast products and leave us a review. 
Sean and I guarantee and are committed to reading absolutely every piece of feedback we get there. And not only that, but you're helping other listeners by getting that feedback in there. It helps us move up the search rankings so that other people can find the episodes. So thank you, everyone. 